Bible said that was good. That was just flat out good. Thank you, Ben. That don't fire you up. I, that's what we got. I mean, I'm going to be a downer compared to that. I'm just telling you that right now, so I get it. But man, that was just good. How many of you did what I said last Sunday morning and you went home and listened to uh, Paul Shepard this morning on the way in? Not a one of you. I, oh, thank you. You did on the way because we listened to it together. Man, did you do a great job last Sunday morning celebrating with those who came out of the tank. So thank you for doing that. You really understood what it meant. This song this morning couldn't have been a better follow-up to last Sunday morning because that is exactly what they said in both services. If you didn't see it, you should have been here. If you missed church for some reason other than sickness or death, um, I don't know why you wouldn't have been here then. But if for some reason you missed it, it is on Facebook, you can back and listen to it, watch it, and just be able to celebrate the testimonies of those who said exactly what Ben just sang about this morning. Man, am I glad I embraced Jesus, because it changed my life. And I'm telling you right now, I'm going to continue to follow Jesus, walk with Jesus, stand for Jesus, till I see him face to face. That is exactly what they were saying last Sunday morning. We're glad you were here to celebrate with it. Sorry about the weather, had no control over that, but we're glad you're here this morning and you made it in safely. I got to believe that if I were to ask you, do you have people in your life that you look up to? People that are your heroes. Last Sunday morning said, hey, thanks for inviting me to church. I had a mom or a dad or a grandparent who really stayed faithful to Christ, faithful to the gospel, and I was able to watch that. We had one gal in the service here last Sunday morning, three and a half rows full of people who've been involved in her life, in Liliana's life, and it was just a great day to celebrate those people in your life. I've been blessed by great parents who uh, embraced Jesus early in, in, in my life, probably about 12, 10 or 12, when I uh, found Christ, they found Christ, went to a Bible preaching, teaching the gospel church, and I embraced Jesus, and I could never thank them enough for that. Every once in a while, when I'll go to another church that's dead and dying, and, and you just wonder how in the world to keep the doors open, I'll go home and I'll call my dad, and I'll say, hey, thank you. Thank you very much for embracing the gospel leading me to a church that preached the gospel and shared the faith. I started out under an incredible man of God that I absolutely adored. Couldn't have been placed in a better environment watching somebody else. Now, all these years of ministry, I've had other people in my life who stayed consistent and, and faithful. We've got them all over this audience. I, I write out uh, anniversary cards to people who, I think it's 40 and over, been married over 40 years and 45 and 50 years and every year, and it's just it's incredible the amount of people here who've stayed consistent, faithful to God, faithful to one another, all heroes of the faith. If you don't have any, they're all over the Word of God, all over the Old Testament, all over the New Testament. People like Moses and Joshua. I love Joshua's life, David's life, Elijah, Elisha, and Daniel. That's who we landed on a couple of Sundays ago. It's who we talked about last Sunday morning. And this morning, I'm going to look at his life. We're going to move just in these two weeks together in examining this question, how do I, as a follower of God, live out my Christian life in, in an environment that doesn't welcome that, like it, embrace it, and sometimes even seems hostile to it? Last Sunday morning when I said to them, and even in the class, said last Sunday, look, you need to know, if you declare your allegiance to Jesus, not everybody's going to embrace it. Not everyone's going to say, that is so awesome. I'm glad you're a follower of Jesus. They're most likely going to say, don't you talk to me about your Jesus. Don't talk to me about your faith. Don't bring your Bible to work. 
Now, many of you may not have that environment, but there are a lot of people, some in this audience, some in the other audience, some who went through that tank who know how hard it is to live out their faith in that kind of an environment. And I hope you have decided, I'm going to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. All my sins are forgiven. I'm a follower of God. And I'm going to do that until the day I see him face to face. I hope you've wrestled with that question at some point or the other. You have sermon notes in your Bible or your, your uh, bulletin. Take them out. You have in your Bible, that means you've have them, kept them for a long period of time. You're going to keep me accountable because of the fact that I may have preached this before somewhere along the way. I have people tell me that all the time. You know you did this one before. Yep, probably did. <laughs> Followers of Jesus Christ are monotheistic. We believe in one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I, I, I certainly believe that and we teach that. But followers of Jesus Christ believe in one God, the Father of all creation. A lot of the world is pluralistic. All religious paths are equally valid. All roads lead to heaven. It's not true. There's only one God, only one way to heaven. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but by me. But not everybody that you come across believes that. They believe in a lot of paths to heaven. All religions are the same. And they talk about God. They're all going to heaven. He'll sort it out at the end. And then, of course, there are a lot who are polytheistic, means there are many gods. You travel all over the world, you'll go to some nations and some countries that'll have hundreds and sometimes thousands of small g gods. Now, the question that I hope you wrestle with, or have at least wrestled with and come to some conclusions about, maybe in this series, is how can I, a believer in the God of creation, stay solid and faithful and committed to Christ in an environment, institution, in government, wherever I may be, in a world that may not embrace my values. How can I stand solid, faithful, and committed? Daniel, Joe, a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago said, hey, love to start out the year with Daniel. And it's brilliant. He is an incredible example of what we want to say over the next few weeks of somebody who got that, who understood it at a very young age, and his faith in God and the faith of his friends in God kept them solid and committed all the way through their journey, even in the middle of an environment that didn't embrace it at all. And I mean at all. Four themes in Daniel. First one Joe talked about, God is in control. You can't read that book without seeing that all over the place. Secondly is the power of convictions or purpose. Because Daniel and his friends had purpose and they backed it up with strong convictions. It gave them tremendous power, even in a godless society, to not bend or give in. There's a lot of people in their environment that, uh, whether it be school or work or wherever that may be, just say, you know what's a whole lot easier just to give in than to try to stand up for my faith. And sometimes they bend, of course. These guys had solid. It is possible. I don't know if it's in your notes. I'm just saying it is possible to live in a godless society and be salt and light. If it wasn't, Jesus wouldn't have said do it. It's not an option. It was a command. It was part of his very first sermon. John the Baptist said, hey, there's Jesus. He's the light of the world. Jesus said, now you are. You're this world's hope. We've said that a few weeks ago. It is possible to do that. Challenge number three is to obviously be in the world or in that environment, but not embrace its values. These guys teach us how to walk a very thin line between being in an environment that doesn't embrace Christ and being able to still maintain my values and obviously, number four, not only is God is in control, God is faithful in every circumstance. 
Daniel was delivered from prison and the lion's den. So were these guys from the fiery furnace that we'll see next Sunday morning. God was with them every single step of the way. Foundation for that is in the first chapter, and it lays itself all the way out. And I go back to that for this reason. What you see in chapter 1 is the historical perspective. This is the guy side. This is what happened. Third year of King Je- uh, the reign of King Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's the what. Why did that happen? That's in the second verse. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into their hands. The what is chapter 1, verse 1. The why is chapter 2, verse 1, verse, chapter 1, verse 2. There's a biblical prophecy. I think that's in your notes as well. There's a biblical prophecy that 100 years before this, Isaiah said to the Jewish people, you're going to be taken captive. I want you to know that. It's going to come. There's also a biblical principle. God is faithful in his blessings and he is faithful in his judgments. You get that? God is faithful in his blessings. He is also faithful in his judgments. They are given to us in accordance to our obedience or disobedience to his command or will. God is just as faithful in his blessings as he is in his judgment. They are contingent upon our obedience or disobedience to his will or to his plan. When we think of the faithfulness of God, we sometimes only see it in a positive sense. God is faithful to bless his people, and he is. But if you study any of the Old Testament or even the New, you'll notice that God is also faithful in his judgment. In the book of Deuteronomy, God says, I really want to bless you, but I need you to obey me. I really want to bless you. I want, I, I want to bless you, but you need to obey me. If you disobey me, you're going to pay the consequences. If you disobey me, you're going to pay the price. And he says it as lovingly and tenderly as he knows how. I lay before you two options. Life and death. I'm begging you, choose life. Right in front of you is two options. Not four rows, not multiple choice. Two options. Follow me. I'm the way. Follow your own path. You'll pay the price. I'm begging you, God says, choose life. His love is unconditional. His blessings are conditional on obedience. And that's sometimes where we get his love is conditional. His blessings are conditional based on obedience. And you have to see that all the way through Scripture and all the way through life. God put the blessings first and the curses last. And a lot of other covenants with other kingdoms, they they do the curses first. Most kings rule their kingdoms with the threat of terror over intimidating their subjects. God doesn't do that. He says, I really, really want you to be a blessed people because I want to bless you. But you need to understand there are consequences to disobedience. Anyone who says that God only wants good things to happen to you, and if bad things happen to you, they must be from the devil or someone else, has a real poor understanding of the nature of God and the principles of Scripture. Example after example after example of God's people going their own way, doing their own thing, disobeying his commands, and calamity comes as a result of that. Story. Four parts that I want to share with you today, and next Sunday we'll pick it up again. The plan of Nebuchadnezzar is what was read a few weeks ago. He ordered, as he brought them all in, he ordered that the select guys, some few young men, out of this context of all of these people come from Israel, and I want them to come. They want to, I, I want to do what I want to with them. I, I want guys that are uh, aptitude for learning, well-informed, quick to understand. I want them to serve in the king's palace. We're going to teach them our language. We're going to teach them our culture. I point that out for this reason. 
His plan was simple. His plan was brilliant. Not just to subdue Israel with military strength. Could have done that and certainly did do that. But to get the best youth of that country. Because he knew that's where the future was. He's going to bring them into their culture. Give them the best they had to offer. Retrain their minds to think like Babylonians. Fall in love with Babylon and never want to go back to Jerusalem. That plan is strategic and brilliant. And it's the same plan that Satan uses in our society. Give me youth. I got him for life. It's exactly what the New Age movement does. It's exactly what gangs do. That's exactly what terrorists do. You've got to understand how incredibly precious those few years are in forming your children because I'm telling you, the world out there wants to take them and form them his direction. If we allow our kids to learn only principles that are non-Christian, which they get every day of their life, and never balance that out with training at home or let them get as much as they can in church, they'll begin to think like non-Christians in what you think you will become. You get that? There's got to be at least one amen. I mean, somebody, come on. Thank you. But if i got to coach it, it's probably not the same. But do you get that? If we allow our children... And you don't have a whole lot of choice over that. If you allow, your, your children are going to go out in that environment. They're most likely not going to be in a God-loving, God-believing, God-following environment. And if that's all they get and you don't balance that out with home and you don't expose them to all the things that we have to offer them here in church, they're going to begin to think then that's the only way. And what you think is what you will normally become. Not always, but that's what you will normally become. And the sad part of it all is it happens usually in first, second, or third grade on the bus on the way to that environment. Right? I mean, how many times I've talked to my kids, I've talked to my grandkids, and, and the things you learn, the things you heard, the things you hear about, and they're not even in school yet. And I ask them, where'd you learn that? Well, on the bus. And so if we don't give them the opportunity to see the balance, we will do absolutely everything we can as a church, to partner with you, which is exactly what our children's ministry wants to do. They want to partner with you as parents. That's why we say in Kids Stuff Theater and all the things we did last week in, in Family Experience, go as a family. Don't just send your kids to church. Don't just hope they get it somewhere. Talk about it. What would you learn today? What was the widget of the day? What was the, the value of the day? What did you learn about this? How you ha- What's it like in school? I mean, just tell me. T- you already know. But pretend you don't. What was it like today on the bus? You learn anything new? And then they'll tell you. You'll be shocked. You may have a coronary, but then you'll go back to it and say, oh, really? So how do you respond to that? I mean, there's just hundreds of those kind of conversations you can have on the way to school, way home, on the way to a sporting event. All those kinds of things. To have those kinds of conversations. Do not leave it just up to us. We got them an hour a week. Maybe a little bit longer than that. You have them all the time. You've got to have those conversations with them because if all they hear is that, they won't know there's anything else, which is why we want you to do that process. It's just fascinating. That's exactly what he did. He knew if I can get them young, if I can get the youth, if I can train them in our culture, in our environment, with our literature, you see it in verse 4, you see it in verse 5, compromise their standards. He changed their names, which in Jewish culture was Really important to have my name and understand my name. But he knew the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about God, the way we think about life will most likely determine how we act. You you can't miss that. 
Because that's incredibly important. When you're raising children, when you're in your world, when you're helping them in their environment. Obviously, number two, you see his response to that and his resolve in verse 8. Daniel decided not to uh, defile himself. One of my life verses, I won't go over it because we did a couple of weeks ago. But when I came to faith in Christ, probably a, a, a year or two before I came to fully embrace Jesus as my Savior, I wrote an article in third or fourth grade saying I'm going to be a missionary when I grow up. Wasn't even sure what one did. But I kind of knew that, that, that God was going to do that. And then when I committed my life to Christ and continued to confirm that call, I found this verse and I thought, man, that's just a great verse to live by. Because I know people are going to ask me, did you do this? Did you do that? Did, I'm going to say, no, what? I didn't. Made a decision really young. Fascinates me in stories of people's journey of faith in Christ. And everybody has a story. Every single one of us have a story. And don't misinterpret what I'm saying. But so often I'll hear a story, whether it be testimony like last week or just in somebody's story of life. And they'll say something like this. I came to faith in Christ in fourth grade. I came to faith in Christ when I was seven. I Accepted Jesus at Bible school. And then, of course, you know, I, I did my own thing for quite a while. And then when somewhere in my late teens, early 20s, I came back to faith in Christ. Almost as if that's normal. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Now, if that happened to you, please don't misinterpret what I'm saying at all. I'm just thrilled that you came back to faith in Christ. But so often we almost see that as the norm. That, well, I accepted Jesus in Bible school. But, you know, obviously in high school I did my own thing. College did my own thing. And then came back to faith in Christ um, as if it's supposed to be that way. That's why we prayed for them last week. Man, you made a commitment to Jesus. I follow God, no turning back, no turning back. And I I pray that you stay that way for the rest of your journey. You can. Because you can make a decision to stay that way. And not have to go another direction. His life carried itself all the way on through his journey. All the way to chapter 6. Let me read it for you. Please, Darius, brand new king, whole nother story, years and years later, to appoint 120 satraps, that's in chapter 6, and it's also on the screen, with three administrators over them. One of them was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so the king didn't suffer loss. So they're trying to keep a tally of all of his resources. Now, Daniel, this is the verse. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the other administrators and satraps with his exceptional qualities, the king planned to set him ruling over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the other satraps decided to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. This is the key. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. That's a pretty good story of life. You know, I made a decision early in my teens. I'm not going to defile myself. I'm going to stay solid. Here we are all these years later. Now he's being confronted again. And they're looking at his life saying, I don't know what we're going to do. The guy's just not, he's living it out. He's living it out in the most ungodly environment you can imagine. So much so that everybody notices it. And everybody sees it. Finally, they said to them in verse 8, we'll never find any basis for charges against him unless this man, Daniel, has something to do with the law of his God. And so they come up with a plan. Saying to the king. And they just they go to the king. And they just sap it out the wazoo. I mean it's just over and over and over again. These administrators. And I know somebody just had a heart attack right there. I'm sorry about that. King Darius live forever. The royal administrators and the prefects and the satraps and the advisors. They all go to him. 
we want you to make a decree that for the next 30 days, nobody prays or bows or does anything to any other God but you. You know what they're saying? You're a God. And we, you, O oh majesty, issue a decree and put it in writing so that it can be altered according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which at that time couldn't be repealed. So he did it, put it in writing. When Daniel learned that, he cried. When Daniel learned that, well, what am I going to do? The environment is so bad, I'll never make it. It's so wicked around me. The world is just a mess, and I'll, I'll just, okay, I might as well just give up. Doesn't do that at all. Stays faithful to his commitment. He hears it. He goes upstairs to his upper room, opens his window toward Jerusalem, and three times a day gets down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God like he had always done. God, this is unbelievable. In this kind of an environment that you would place me and put me, but I'm just still going to give you praise. Unreal. We just sang it this morning. It's easy to sing it. Not always easy to live it out. Three times a day, these men went as a group, found Daniel praying and asking God for help. You see his decisiveness in chapter 1. Here, here's a young man in a strange land who made up his mind to stick to his convictions he made up at a meeting. I don't think he went around saying, hey, you three, what are you going to do? I mean, I don't know. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Should we do it? Should we go along with it? Not at all. Stayed his convictions, made up his mind. The significance of his decision is that, number one, he took a stand immediately, and second, he took it to God in prayer. Every one of us knows what it's like to be involved or get caught in a compromising situation and not say anything or do anything and find it so hard to do that the second time. The issue of temptation and compromise has to be settled on the front end. It's extremely difficult to do it in the middle. There's a tendency for a person to say, well, even as a young person, I haven't settled a lot of those issues. I don't have a whole lot of strong convictions on some stuff. And, but someday, somewhere down the road in my 30s, I'll, I'll settle that and I'll make some solid convictions. No. These guys did it on the front end. They kept it all the way through their journey. The problem isn't that you haven't settled convictions. The problem is you haven't settled them for yourself. Because if you've not settled your convictions, which are the anchors of the boat of your life, when the storms of life blow, and I'm guaranteeing you they're going to blow, you'll go in every different direction under the sun. It don't have to be my convictions. It doesn't have to be your parents. Developing those convictions to say, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And no matter what happens, what environment I get in, I have made that decision. And I'm making it on the front end instead of in the middle of it or on the back end after paying the price. A couple really quick examples. Most easiest one. If I decided not to drink and drive, you got to do that on the front end, not when you're going 80 miles an hour out of control in a car. If I decide not to get in a vehicle with somebody who's drinking and driving, you got to decide that on the front end, not when they're going down the road at 80 miles an hour out of control. That makes sense, right? I mean, you, obviously you make it on the front end, not in the middle of it. If you make a decision, as a young person, if you make a decision that I'm not going to get seriously involved with a non-believer, you got to do that before you get seriously involved with a non-believer because you cannot do it in the middle of the relationship with so deep and so heavy that you can't see straight. You either get some convictions, take a stand, 
which may sometimes be a stranger in a foreign land, but I'm telling you, you'll pay a price. And if you are in that context where you say, well, it doesn't really matter. I'll do my best. Hopefully they'll come to church. I am telling you, as sure as I'm standing here after 41 years of ministry, you most likely will be coming to church by yourself. I love you enough to tell you that. Based on all these years of history. Most likely, not always, trust me, not always, but I'm just saying, you will most likely be coming to church by yourself and praying that maybe your kids will come with you. Most of the time, it's the gals who are by themselves. Many times, obviously, it's the, it can be the guys. Certainly, I get that, and I've seen it. I'm just saying, if you don't decide on the front end that that's, what's gonna, that that's what you want to be, that's the conviction you hold to, you will be coming by yourself. Now, if you decide in the front end, I want to marry a believer, and you marry a believer, that's no guarantee of success. I've seen some really dumb Christians. <laughs> and so have you. I've seen some really stupid guys who made some really stupid decisions and can't figure out why their wife is going crazy kind of thing. So I, I get that. I just, I'm saying that to be honest with you. Christianity is no, no guarantee of success in that relationship, but I'm telling you, it's more, way, the percentages are so much higher than being here by yourself. Okay, does that make sense? That's why I'm saying you've got to develop those standards on the front end. You also see it, uh, see it in Daniel where he just constantly sought God all the way through his life, on his knees before Almighty God. You see it over and over again. Three times he prays. Every time he seeks God's face. You've got to understand the challenges of life in your sermon notes. You have to make prayer your first response, not your last resort. You have to make prayer your first response, not your last resort. Well, I guess I suppose I should pray about this. Yeah. <laughs> From the front end. Not the middle or the back end. He stayed faithful to God. He's faithful to the challenges. He knew that God would be faithful to him. He knew that he couldn't be intimidated by his circumstances, couldn't be intimidated by his condition, couldn't be intimidated by his convictions. He was willing to stand alone, willing to have them tested, held to them no matter what, in a culture that did not embrace his values. Look at the outcome. It's in your notes as well as on the screen. Chapter 1, at the end of those days when he put his convictions to the test, they were healthier than, more nourished than any of the other men around them. God blessed them and God gave them ability to see the future in verse 17. Chapter 6. Now, fast forward a number of years. Based on the story that I read to you a moment ago, the king said, agreeing to these other guys, if he prays to any other God but me, go in the lion's den. Daniel did that, prayed knowing it's going to cost him his life, ends up in a lion's den. This is what happens, verse 22. Got to read the story in chapter 6. This is what he says to the king. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouth of the lions. Man, I have prayed that prayer more than you can imagine. They've not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Neither have I done anything wrong before you, your king. The king was overjoyed, gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was lifted up from the den, no wound was found in him because he had trusted in his God. Incredible story. Even more so, you've got to understand the second piece of this in next Sunday's sermon with the other three guys. Finally, I want to make sure you understand God's plan, number four in your sermon notes. In the book of Jeremiah, God told them, this all is going to happen. You're going to end up in Babylon. 
I just need you to know that. And there's some false prophets who came forward and rose up and told the people of God, hey, you've you got to stay separate. You can't have anything to do with their culture. You've got to pray against the city. Their plan was to isolate and separate. The problem was that wasn't what God wanted them to do at all. And they weren't even speaking for God, which is why you have to have so much discernment when you hear a pastor speak or anybody on the radio, me, even me. When you hear a pastor speak or somebody on the radio or somebody in television, you've got to have discernment. When they say this is a message from God. These guys were given a false message. Jeremiah, the true prophet of God, says this in chapter 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty said. To those that I will carry from Jerusalem in exile to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. I don't think Daniel was ever about a diet. Eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters. Find your wives who have sons and daughters. So they have some sons and daughters. Increase in number. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city that I carried you to. Pray to the Lord for it, for the city, for the people. Yes, this is what the God of Israel said. Don't let those prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams they have or the things they say. They are prophesying lies in my name. I haven't sent them. This is what the Lord Almighty says. When those 70 years are up, I'll come to you. I'll fulfill my promise to you, and I'll bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you. That phrase, that verse, those verses have been used in a hundred other ways, and, and, and they're great verses. But the context is this. God says, I know what I'm doing. I have placed you in that environment so that you can influence it. I have placed you in that environment so you can make a difference. I have placed you in that environment so that you can be salt and light. You may say to yourself every day on the way to work, God, why do I have to go and work with these people? Hopefully it's not here. But <laughs> God, why do I have to go work with these people? That lady beside me, the kid on the bus, the, the, my, you know, whatever. God said, I know what I'm doing. I have placed you there so that you can make a difference. I don't want you to isolate. don't want you to separate. I have placed you, I know the plans I have for you. I have plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. Then you'll call on me and come and pray and I'll listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with a little bit of your heart. No? All your heart. Sounds counterintuitive, I get that, than what you think God would say. We would think God says separate, isolate. That's not the answer. It's not what I want you to do. I need you to see the bigger picture in your sermon notes. I need you to engage the culture. You're here by design to influence the culture. Never in your notes lose your identity. Know who you are and whose you are. Don't assimilate, but do not separate. You're in that culture. Thrive. Get involved. I don't want you to be in that culture and remain in your little spiritual fortress and look around saying, this world is so bad, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm just going to stay here until Jesus comes back. Not what I want you to do. Is the world bad? Absolutely. Is the world awful? Absolutely. Is it going to get better? No. I've read the book. Who's got a Bible? Seriously, none of you come with a Bible? There you go. I've read this book. I've read the end. The world doesn't get better. I hope you're not shocked by that. It does not get better. It only progressively gets worse and worse and worse. Doesn't matter what happens in 2020. I'm scared to death what's going to happen in 2020 in elections. I'll tell you that. But I'm telling you, it's not going to get any better. It doesn't matter who gets in office. It's not going to get any better. So to sit around and cry about the culture and worry about what's going to happen, it, we already, it's going to get worse. 
It's not going to get any better. But I'm telling you, I've also read the end of the book, and we win. Followers of Jesus Christ who stay faithful and committed in the middle of a wicked environment, we win. We see Jesus face to face, and he said, look who's here because you stayed faithful, consistent, and committed. Maybe you did not know the influence you had. Maybe you had no idea they had ever come to faith in Christ. But I'm telling you, look who's here now because you stay consistent and faithful all the way through from beginning to end. People that you thought hated me, hated God, hated church. Now they're here in the kingdom because you stayed faithful and consistent. You bloomed where you were planted. You stayed constantly aware of who I am. You prayed to me every day, sometimes multiple times a day. God, help me get through the day. Help me, God, just to get to lunch. Help me, God, to get into fifth grade or seventh grade or get out. And, and that, that's what I love about this chapter. That's what I love about this book. That's what I love about these guys. You have an opportunity. I have an opportunity. We all, you, I will never, ever in my lifetime, if I live five lives, I will never in my lifetime inter- interface with the people that you have a con- chance to win. Never. But boy, you do. Sometimes by your words, most of the time by unspoken words, by the lifestyle you live. Living it out in an ungodly environment is the model these guys set, not just because they happen to be the special ones of the group, or grew up in a Christian home, these guys just simply stand. God says, I know how hard it is. I know how tough it is. So in my word, if, you'll, if you're in it, I'll give you some great models, some great examples of how to do it, how to make it, how to stay consistent and faithful to the end. Even if it costs you everything. We'll see that next week. But I ask you a question. You don't have to stand if you don't want. But... If indeed you're in a very difficult environment and you want to take a stand, as we sang about a moment ago, and you just would love to say by your standing, Dan, would you pray for me? Um, would you do that? Would you stand right where you're at? If you're in a tough environment, it's hard to stay faithful, hard to stay committed to Christ. It's hard to let your light shine in the middle of that environment. I'd love to pray for you. Would you have the courage to stand? God, I love these people. They're not Daniels. They're not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're June and John and Mary and Sue. And and the list is endless. But they are standing this morning saying, I want to stay faithful and committed. But man, is it hard in my world, in my neighborhood, where I work, where I live, when I go to school, where I go to school. That non-Christian Secular college will not teach me what I know is true. But God, would you help me to stay faithful and committed? And so, Father, that's what they're asking you this morning. And that's what I'm praying you'll do in this context and in this environment. That they will stand. Will the rest of you stand with me? Sing that just one piece of that, Dave. Would you sing with me? And I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all. And I'll stand 